Let's open up our Bibles to Psalm 34. Psalm 34. If we have not had a chance to meet yet, my name is Kenson. I serve as the pastor of our Bridgeport Church. So really grateful to be with you all this morning for your 10 a.m. service. I have not been here at a 10 a.m., so uh, it's quite a joy to be able to share that with you. Also, if you're not, if you're newer with us, just so that you know, uh, your pastor, Pastor Rafe, is actually helping to preach at Bridgeport right now for me. So we're actually going to keep like going back and forth, doing stuff like that. But it's able to allow us just to be able to, you know, pastor and shepherd and be able to hear different voices within the church. So Psalm 34, and I also want to encourage you too that the hundred days, uh, technically, it ends tomorrow, okay? So if you have not had a chance to do it yet or participate, you still have at least 24 hours. So I just want to encourage you just to pray and ask whatever opportunities God might just bring before you, someone that you're walking across the street, your neighbor, a coworker, whatever, a barbecue that you're going to, to really make the most of every opportunity. It's still not too late for that, okay? So Psalm 34, I am going to be closing out our Psalm series. So let me read Uh, This entire chapter, and then we'll jump in, okay? Psalm 34. It says this. Of David, when he changed his behavior before Abimelech, so that he drove him out and he went away. Now verse 1. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. That my soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. And let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. The poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Verse 8, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you who saints... For those who fear him have no lack. The young lion suffers want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, old children, listen to me. I will teach you to fear the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. Verse 15. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil, to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones, and not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You know, a couple of years ago, I was driving, and I was in a rush, and I knowingly made a right-hand turn on a red light when I wasn't supposed to, but I knew it, but I did it. I was in a hurry. So I made a right-hand turn on red light, and I was in such a hurry that I didn't realize that there was a police car right on the other side of the street. So as soon as I made the turn, I could see right on my mirror 
the lights go off, and I know, like, oh, man, I'm in trouble. You know, he walks over, and I just own up to my mistake. I said, I'm, I was in a hurry. I'm sorry. I shouldn't have turned right, but I turned right. So he takes my driver's license and my insurance card, and for the next 10 minutes, and I have no idea why they take so long, but for the next 10 minutes, they're sitting in the police car, kind of just looking at their little laptop, and I'm thinking to myself, oh, man, my life is over. You know, the anguish of waiting, you know, traffic school. He comes back to the car, taps my window, gives me back my driver's license and insurance card, and says, I'm just going to go ahead and give you a warning. Don't do that again. You're free to go. And I was like, what? I'm free to go? No ticket? No fine? No traffic school? You know, next to my kids being born, this is like the next greatest moment of my life. Well, and, then, and then being married and knowing Jesus, okay? And then the traffic, okay? Then this, okay? But I was ecstatic. I was praising God to the top of my lungs. I was driving down to Eden, Edens, and I was smiling at people. I was so happy. I was clapping my hands. I was exuberant over my deliverance. You know, in today's story, David is exuberant over his deliverance. You know, look at the subscript of this psalm here. Now, many of the psalms that we've studied so far, we've had to guess the context. We actually don't have to guess the context here. We actually know when and why David wrote this. Look at the subscript. It says, of David, when he changed his behavior before Abimelech, so he drove him out and he went away. This is in reference to 1 Samuel chapter 21 and 22. Now, let me just give you some story here, right? So David is a shepherd boy who's been anointed as the new king of Israel. That even though he's the youngest of the sons of Jesse and the smallest in stature, God chose David because he was a man after God's own heart. And we see this God-fearing heart most clearly in this infamous battle between David and Goliath. Goliath is a Philistine who's been mocking God and the people of God and the army of God for weeks, but the soldiers and King Saul are too scared to fight Goliath because Goliath was a giant of a man. He was a murderer. He would, he would, he would kill anybody. But when David shows up to the battlefield and hears Goliath mocking God and the people of God, David's like, you know what? I'm going to fight him. So David goes out there, fights Goliath, kills Goliath for the glory of God. And David is an overnight sensation. People are singing on the streets. King Saul, he has killed his thousands, but David, he has killed his tens of thousands. So King Saul hears this, and in his insecurity, he wants to murder David. So David runs for his life, and of all places to run to, he goes to hide in a Philistine city that Abimelech or Achish, who are both the same guy, referring to the same person, ruled over, which is the city of Gath. So David runs to the city of Gath, a Philistine city. Do you know who else is from the city of Gath? Goliath is from the city of Gath the champion of the Philistine army whom David killed. So of all places to hide from Saul, he goes to Gath. He moves from the frying pan right into the fire, and it isn't long before David is spotted. And people are like, hey, isn't this guy the guy who killed our champion, Goliath? Hey, isn't that the David who killed our brothers, who killed my friends in the battle against the Israelites? We should kill him. David knows right away he is a dead man. 
So what David does in this moment is that he begins to act like a crazy person. He begins scratching up the walls and floors with his fingernails. There is like drool and booger coming down all his beard. And by a miracle of God, King Achish sees David in this state. And Achish says, do you not realize that I already have enough crazy people in my city? I don't need another one. So he releases David and David is free to go. And it's in that freedom we have the context of Psalm 34. It is David's exuberance because of God's deliverance in his life. That this man who is so overwhelmed with gratefulness and praise for his God, and in his exuberance, in his good news, he invites us to come and to taste that the Lord is good. He invites us to learn what he learned about a God who can do all things but fail. Look at verse 3 here. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Join me in this. And let us exalt his name together. Now, now, what does it mean to magnify God? Now, first, it doesn't mean to make God look big because he is small. No, it's the opposite. This is the difference between a microscope and a telescope. Let me show it to you. That a microscope takes a tiny object and makes it look bigger because our weak eyes can't see it. This is not what David is saying. Instead, he sees God like we would a telescope looking at the sky. That a telescope takes massive objects like galaxies, which are so big and so far away that they look like little twinkling stars in the sky. Our weak and frail eyes can't see it. So a telescope magnifies it so that we can see it for what it really is. When David calls us to magnify the Lord, it's because in David's deliverance, it has allowed him to see who God really is. And this is such good news. And anytime you have good news, you want other people to hear it. So he's like, come and join me in worship. Let's worship God with our lives and let's remind ourselves who's most real, who's most precious, who's most glorious. And it's the beauty and worth of God. Psalm 34 is an invitation to magnify God together because he is a God that brings deliverance. So here's the question we're trying to answer today. So what did David learn in his deliverance, right? What did he learn? What's he so excited about? What words does he have for us who might be facing trouble? What truths do we need to hold on to? Let me just give you three of many, many insights from this psalm, but let me just give you three of them. First is this. God is attentive, God is near, God will rescue. What did David learn in this deliverance? He learned that God is attentive, God is near, and God will rescue. So first, God is attentive. Look at verse 15 to 17 here with me again. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of their troubles. Friends, did you know that God never takes a single day off from graciously looking out for you? That no matter what you're going through, God knows it. God sees it. God is sovereign over all things, even in the bad things. That even in the bad things, God will take you through it because he has a good plan for it. Romans 8.28 says this, 
And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. This is why David can say in verse one, I will bless the Lord at all times because even in the bad times, God is gonna find a way to make the bad stuff for good. And this is God's promise. He is attentive to us. That when we go through hard times, God sees you. He's got you. He's not mad at you. He loves you. And this is a promise that is meant to help us to endure because the temptation that we all face when we're in trouble is that God isn't watching us. We say, God, how could you let this happen? God, did I do something bad? Are you forsaking me? Is God asleep on the job here? No, no. Verse 15, the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. God sees us and hears us. If we have placed our faith in Jesus as Lord and Savior, it is God's promise to look over us. And this is such good news because when God promises us this, it means that God's attentiveness is not transactional. Now what I mean by that is that if God, if God watching us was proportional to how much we watched him, it would mean that we would not be getting watched as much as we want. When God watches us, it's not dependent on me or on how much I paid attention to him. The gospel of grace says that God is faithful even when we are faithless. 2 Timothy 2.13. God is consistent. God is reliable. God stays on the job whether or not if we stay on our job or not. Now, this doesn't mean that we have a license to do whatever you want but it's a reminder of how good our God is. He is faithful and he is consistent. God makes it a habit to watch over his kids. You know, for any of us here who are young parents or we've had a chance to maybe babysit really young kids, parenting young kids, babysitting young kids is very hard to do. Now, let me just say, in the first six months, it's actually not too difficult because they're still an infant and they haven't learned to move yet. So when you have an infant and you put them on the ground and you come back in five minutes, guess where they're at? They're still in the same spot. Hallelujah, praise the Lord, okay? That is awesome. But then around after that six-month mark, your world begins to change. Because the kids now, they're able to crawl they're able to grab things. Some of them can pull themselves up. Some of them can even walk. They're early ones, right? You're like, oh my goodness. And it becomes a nightmare. As parents, then we need to stay vigilant. You know, we actually have to put down our phones from Twitter and Instagram and pay attention to our kids. You know, just recently, we were at the beach and my youngest son, Easton, he always thinks that he can hang with his older brothers and go as deep as they can, but he, but he can't handle it. He can't do it. And I try to tell him that. I was like, hey, you know what? Your brothers are bigger than you. They're going to go deeper into the water, but you're smaller. It's dangerous. Don't do this. I'm trying to hold him back. And you guys know how it is when you're dealing with like a one-and-a-half-year-old. They're yelling at you. They're screaming at you. They, you know, they're like, you know, and I was just like, you know what? I don't care, I'm exhausted fighting with you, go. Just go as deep as you want, okay? And you know, well, I didn't really do that, but you know what I mean, right? I'm just like, I'm just done, so go. So there he goes, like well, kind of waddling in the water, and next thing you know, this one-inch wave comes, hits him, and he's like, oh, and he begins to fall. 
Now, I know that in my head that his arms aren't developed enough for even if he falls down, even if he was to push himself up, he would still be under the water. So I know that he's going to drown. He doesn't know this so that as he falls and begins to fall into the water, I go ahead. And I'm not, you know, even though I said I didn't care, I did care. You know, I wasn't like six feet away. I was only six inches away. So I grab his arm and I lift him up before he drowns. And I feel like Superman. I'm like, yeah, that's awesome, right? Now, here's the principle I'm trying to get at. I was able to catch my son because I was watching him. You know, in the same way, God promises to watch us. And he is so intent on watching us that just like the story here, that even our refusal to have him watch us does not negate his promise. Our doubts can't stop him. Our stuff can't stop him. Our pride can't stop him. God is not distracted. He is always attentive. Verse 15, the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. Verse 17, when the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears their cry. When we are in trouble and in crisis, God is watching us, not in a vindictive way. He's not waiting for us to rebel or for us to mess up. He watches because he loves us. He gazes on us with tenderness and warmth and affection. He listens to every prayer, takes note of every groan. He is moved by every cry of anguish. When others might ignore you, when others might slight you, your God will not do that. God is attentive. Here's the second thing that David learned. God is near. Look at verse 18 here. God is near. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Now, many of us here, we have faced and experienced a broken heart. Now, what does it mean to have a broken heart? You know, I think what a broken heart means is to have opportunities that you thought would happen never come true. That it's when you're really hoping and planning for something and having those expectations unmet. I think that's a broken heart. Now, for some of us here, our hearts are breaking over a relationship or maybe a lack of a relationship. Our hearts are breaking because we've worked so hard for this career, we've studied so long in school, and no one recognizes that and opens up an opportunity for you to grow or at least work in that business or corporation. Our hearts are breaking over our children who are making decisions that are leading them away from the Lord. Our hearts are breaking because we worry that our sickness might take us away from those that we love. When our hearts break, we can't help but wonder, God, where are you? God, where are you in these unmet expectations? David learned through his deliverance that even with the heartbreak of being rejected, the heartbreak of being the target of people's attack, the heartbreak of hearing that, David, one day you will be the king of Israel, but yet in the moment of Psalm 34, he is running, he is living in caves, he is scared for his life. In all of this, David learned that God is near. Now, how did David learn this? First, he understood that following God doesn't mean that you will never suffer. Now, there's some people who teach you that, hey, when you become a Christian, now life is gonna be full of butterflies and daisies and rainbows. It's gonna be fantastic, okay? That's not the case at all. That when we follow Christ, it doesn't take us away from suffering. Quite honestly, because of the mission of God, it leads us right into really hard places. You know, Philippians 1.29, the Apostle Paul says this, 
For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. To follow God does not mean an absence of suffering. Sometimes it might mean a calling to suffering. Even look at our verses here. Look at our verses and notice who is crying out for help. Verse 15. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. Verse 17. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their trouble. Verse 19. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. Now let me just pause here. In our verses here, who are the ones in trouble? No, clearly, you know, the ones who are in trouble are the wicked. They need to be punished for their sin, right? You know, it's the sinners. It's the evil people. These are the people who are really facing a lot of struggles and troubles in their life. No. Over and over again, it says that it's the righteous who cry out for help. It's the righteous who are troubled. David says in verse 19, many are the afflictions of the righteous. Not some afflictions, but many afflictions. Troubles and afflictions are to be experienced because we live in a world broken by sin. And frankly, if I can just say troubles and afflictions, this is true of every person who has a breath on this earth. But where things get different is how God uses these troubles in our lives. In verses 21 and 22, we see the contrasting purposes of affliction for the righteous and for the wicked. Look at verse 21 and 22. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. Verse 22, the Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. Notice what it says here about the affliction. Affliction ruins the wicked. It's the end of their story. It's final judgment. But affliction for the righteous is not their end. For the wicked, affliction has a punitive effect. For the righteous, it has a purifying effect. That instead of hardening the heart, it makes the heart of a believer humble and sensitive to the presence of God in the person of the Holy Spirit. That in affliction, those who are righteous, we are not condemned. God does not separate us and reject us. Instead, he promises to be near. You know, the word near in verse 18 in the Hebrew is an interesting word because this is also the word that we can translate as neighbor or kinsman or kinsfolk. David is saying here is that in our troubles, God is not only close to us in proximity, he's close to us in fellowship. That God is not just closer to you in times of trouble, but he gets better to you in times of trouble. This is why intimacy with God so often it happens in the midst of troubles. Have you noticed that? That some of the greatest moments of spiritual growth in our lives has happened in moments of crisis? And I think the reason for that is because any time or anything that we trust outside of Jesus, in moments of crisis, it gets exposed for truly how weak it is. My self-sufficiency, my health, my bank account, my grades and degrees, my job title— when trouble hits, hits our lives, all these things that we've been counting on just don't work. And that's when Jesus becomes good and strong and sweet is because he is all I have. He is near the brokenhearted. He will be near to us in 
hard seasons. <coughs> you know, I have a friend and fellow pastor, Ricky, who played high school football. And during a game, he was sharing with me of how he was playing a game, and in the middle of the game, he got tackled. Well, specifically, he got speared. So he gets hit by two different people, and literally from two different angles. And as soon as that moment happened, the stadium went quiet. People are like, oh my goodness. I don't think this guy's gonna get back up. I think he's paralyzed. And in the quietness of the stadium, all you can hear is Ricky screaming at the top of his lungs. And as he's screaming, his uncle who was there watching the game runs onto the field, kneels next to Ricky and says, Ricky, we're gonna get you help, hang in there. So the ambulance gets there and they begin to move Ricky onto the stretcher and the pain is more than he can handle. Ricky is just screaming for dear life. So his uncle calls out to Ricky and says, Rick, 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 every time it hurts, squeeze my hand. Do you hear me? Every time it hurts, squeeze my hand. So they begin to move Ricky, squeeze, ah, squeeze, ah, and you would just hear it for the next 20 feet as they're walking Ricky over to the ambulance, ah, squeeze, ah, squeeze, and it would just happen nonstop. Now Ricky, he finally gets to the ambulance, makes it to the hospital, and with some good PT, he's doing just fine. He's not playing football anymore, but he's, he's doing just fine. But when I talked to Ricky about this, he said that in his moment of pain, he knew that he's going to be all right because his uncle was with him. It's because he knew he could still remember that moment of how he could squeeze his hand. In Psalm 34, David learned that God is near in our troubles, that we can squeeze his hand when it hurts. Friends, are you in trouble? Are you facing crisis right now? Will you squeeze God's hand because he is near? Here's the final insight from David, what he learned from his deliverance. And here's the final thing. God will rescue. Now, I know this seems pretty obvious because this is the source of his praise and adoration. God will rescue. But what I love about this psalm is not that God will rescue you barely, but God will rescue you fully and finally. Now, let me just highlight these verses here. And I want you to notice that in the verses I'm about to show you, how often David says the word all or the concept of like all, like we're complete, right? And how God rescues us and how it's so absolute and how full it is and how complete it is. Let me show you the verses here and it's gonna be on the screen here. It's really small because there's a lot of verses that talk about this. Verse one, I will bless the Lord at all times. Verse four, he delivered me from all my fears. Verse five, their faces shall never be ashamed. Verse 6, God saved David out of all his troubles. Verse 9, those who fear him have no lack. Verse 10, those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Verse 17, the Lord delivers the righteous out of all their troubles. Verse 19, the Lord delivers the righteous out of all their afflictions. Verse 22, none of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. Do you see here? God will rescue fully and finally. But I think one of the greatest promises, one of the most powerful promises of rescue is in verses 19 and 20. Look at verse 19 and 20. Many are afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. Verse 20, he keeps all his bones. 
not one of them is broken. Now, when you read verse 20, it might sound familiar because it's a messianic prophecy. You know, in the Gospel of John, Jesus hangs on a cross and dies. And Jesus is so dead that when the soldiers see him, they don't see the need to break his leg, which is often done as a way, like when you would hang on the cross and, you, and you're bound by your hands and legs here, one of the ways that you suffered is by every, you would have to pull yourself up through the nails to grasp for air, to breathe. Well, what they would often do is that after a long enough time of suffering, they would just break your legs, and basically you can't pull yourself anymore, and you would die by suffocation. So the soldiers would do this, and in this case here, Jesus was so dead dead that breaking his legs would be an overkill, so they passed him right up from breaking his bones. And it says this in that moment in the Gospel of John. John 19, 36, let me show it to you. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled, not one of his bones will be broken. Now, why does John quote Psalm 34? How is this good news for us? It's because it tells us of God's eternal plan to send us a deliverer, okay? Keep following me here. In the book of Exodus, we read this incredible story of God's people in slavery under the hands of Pharaoh. So God raises up Moses to deliver his people, and he sends 10 divine miracles to challenge the idols of Egypt. And over and over again, Pharaoh refuses, he rejects it. And it isn't until the 10th and final plague that God breaks Pharaoh's pride, and it's the death of the firstborn male of every home. And the only way a family would be spared is if you were to take a spotless lamb, make the sacrifice and take that blood and put it over your doorpost so that the angel of death would pass over your family, pass over your house. This moment, right, it was considered one of the greatest moments of deliverance for all of Israel, and it was to be celebrated every year as a Passover meal. In Exodus chapter 12, God commands his people to commemorate this day, to remember this day, to celebrate this day, and to have this meal. And God even tells them how I want you to prepare this meal, specifically the lamb. Let me show you what he says about how you should prepare the lamb. God commands this. The lamb shall be eaten in one house. You shall not take any of the flesh outside the house, and you shall not break any of its bones. Do you see what's happening here? When John quotes Psalm 34, he is pointing to this picture that Jesus is the greater and better Passover lamb. If you thought what happened with Moses and the Exodus was an incredible moment of deliverance, Jesus is even better that Jesus will be the one to spill his blood so that we would have salvation. This is why we know that God will deliver us because he has sent us a deliverer. When the bones of Jesus were not broken, it's meant to tell you that the cross was not the end of the story. God is still in control. He is still working to fulfill his promise. Everything was happening to God's gracious plan. And we know that three days later that the tomb is empty. This is the eternal hope of verse 20. It's the hope of new life. The hope of resurrection. It's the hope of a transformed and healed heart. 
This is why God instructs his people not to break the bones of the Passover lamb, which it might have felt so random to the people of Israel, but God said this because he knew that one day he would raise the true Passover lamb back to life. And we too, we too who place our faith in Christ will be raised in glory. God will deliver his people either in this life or the life to come. That is his promise. That is our eternal hope. Hope God will rescue because God has sent a rescuer, Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. So here's the question for you. Will you go to God for deliverance? Will you go to him? David says in verses four and five, I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. To look to God, to seek God, is to pray to God, is to trust God alone for his deliverance and salvation. And we read here is that when we seek God, we will never be ashamed. Now, why does it say that? It's because when we go to God in weakness, we will feel vulnerable. We will feel exposed. And none of us like that feeling, but God promises and he welcomes us and he invites us to come to him that when you come to him, no matter how beat up you are, no matter how banged up you are, no matter how messed up your life is, he promises, he invites us, I will never shame you. I'll never humiliate you. I'll never mock you. I'll never belittle you. Instead, when you come to me, your face will be radiant. Your face will glow. Why? It's because the joy of the Lord is now now yours. Those who passionately seek him will never be disappointed. We can seek him. We can trust him for eternal security. We can trust him for guidance and wisdom and forgiveness. We can trust him to never leave nor forsake us. We can trust him to be a good and gracious and kind God. And thus we can say the words and shout the words of verse 1. I will bless the Lord at all times. My praise shall continually be in my mouth. Now what does it mean to bless the Lord at all? all times, it means that I can praise the Lord, not just when things are going my way or when things are easy. We can also praise the Lord when it's hard and unexpected, that we can praise God when there is threat. We can praise God when we're uncertain. We can praise God when it's painful. We can praise God when we are afraid because he is attentive, he is near, and he will rescue. Verse 8, taste and see that the Lord is good. Trust him against all odds. Lean on him, rest on him, and when there seems to be no way out, trust and see that the Lord is good. Let's come together and let's magnify the Lord. Amen? Amen. Let's bow our heads and pray. Father God, we praise you and we thank you that your covenant with us is not one that is based on conditions. You know, if we do this, then you do this. Based on duty, you know, based on the covenant of law, but God, it's based on the covenant of grace. The God, that the attentiveness that we have from you, the nearness that we have from you, the relationship that we have with you, is possible because Jesus, he has paid the price. 
he has lived a life that we can never live, earned a righteousness that we can never earn. And Father, he died the death that we deserve. And Father, because of that, Father, we get to stand in grace. And Father, we get to know and we get to claim the promise that every time we're in trouble, every time we're in crisis, God, you are there. And Father, you will rescue. We've seen it 2,000 years ago in, the son of, in your son, Jesus Christ, Father. You can rescue, you can deliver. We know that. So Father, I just pray for the church here, Lord. I pray for many of us who are sitting here right now dealing with all different types of situations. God, would you help us to cry out to you? God, help us to forsake and to repent of our self-sufficiency, of these idols who would keep us away from you. But Father, to really realize and to understand, just like how David understood, that in his crisis, the Lord is good. He is near the brokenhearted. He welcomes us in. Father, we thank you for that gift. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.